Let me open our meeting with prayer. Our Father, we uh, gratefully acknowledge your care for us in all things. And we thank you for um, the day that you've given us and the calling to serve you in it, the variety of ways in which we can serve you. And now we thank you for this meeting and an opportunity to continue to study John's Gospel under the tutelage of Dr. Ferguson, and especially as we enter into this concluding portion of our Savior's prayer for himself and for his apostles and for all who would be built on that foundation, that um, we would marvel at uh, Christ's ministry and the significance of it and the um, power of it and the longevity of it. We freely grant and uh, laud the notion that Christ was praying for us in that prayer. And we pray that you'll help us more and more to understand what that means. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we have a lot to cover tonight uh, in this first section of the prayer. Um, the chapter is called Christ's Heart Opened. It's chapter 11 on page 177. And um, Dr. Ferguson is going to begin by giving us the context of the prayer in the history of redemption, and particularly to look at its background in uh, the Day of Atonement, and then to note the structure of the prayer in three parts, and to take up then part one, Jesus' prayer for himself. And in the con- in context of that, we'll look at various features of the prayer that uh, Dr. Ferguson wants to highlight um, uh, concerning the deity of uh, our Savior and his self-consciousness, the glory of Christ and the Father, um, what that glory means for our blessedness, and the great work of restoration uh, that brings joy to the Son. And then he concludes with that intriguing allegory, uh, the stranger in smoke land. Uh, if we had time tonight, I would um, read to you a poem uh, written in part by a great Scottish theologian called Smoking Spiritualized, uh, where he meditates upon all of the wonders of gospel truth uh, illustrated <laughs> in smoking a pipe, but uh, I'll have to save that for another time. And we'll just stick with Dr. Ferguson's allegory. So the heart of Christ opened, John 17, 1 through 5. Let me read the passage. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him all authority, given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me 
in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Well, a small portion, but just packed with all kinds of interesting things. I can think of at least four subjects that had we had more time and perhaps Dr. Ferguson had had more room in the chapter could be taken up out of this uh, little portion of Christ's prayer and very important, significant subjects. But we'll be content with what uh, he's put before us. Um, And so he begins reflecting on how we know others, and of course, best is face to face. But he said even better uh, is that uh, you overhear them talking with someone that they have a deep love for. The fact that there is such a... uh, wonderful relationship leads to a perfect freedom of expression. And thus we can learn enormous amounts about the the, uh, sincere and free exchange of those who have a great love for one another. Uh, We've already experienced this uh, to some degree with respect to speaking to the apostles. But now the wonder of this section is that we're getting to overhear him speaking to his heavenly father. And it's an an extraordinary privilege. Dr. Ferguson calls it the Lord's Prayer, noting that it is the longest prayer in the New Testament. Uh, And the quiet, uh, and perhaps what was a din for a time in that upper room, now has come over uh, the whole crowd. It's only Christ speaking with his father, And in some ways, the structure of the prayer follows the structure of John's gospel altogether. Prologue and epilogue, uh, two parts in between. And uh, that seems reflective in chapters 13, 14, and 15, 16. Um, Well, and then the uh, section ends with an epilogue, and, and that's Jesus's prayer for himself and for his disciples. Um. It is often called, he notes, uh, at least since the Reformation, Christ's high priestly prayer. Um, the, um, it certainly is a mediatorial prayer. Uh, there's not much language of sacrifice in it, but Dr. Ferguson's going to show us a good reason why we could continue to think of it that way. It's also been called by uh, those who've studied it, uh, a prayer of consecration. That makes sense. That's F.F. F. Bruce. Herman Ritterboss called it the farewell prayer, uh, being so linked to the uh, farewell discourse. And others have just called it the prayer of Jesus. I like calling it the Lord's Prayer myself. Um, and in a way that seems to me to be wonderful, uh, I think it is a, a, an expression of who Jesus is in his great mediatorial role for us that transcends any other prayer that we have in the New Testament. Well, um, Dr. Ferguson wants to move us along then to say that uh, if we study the Day of Atonement and the work of the high priest on that day, uh, the sacrifices made, the way he is admitted to the Holy of Holies, um, uh, the annual day, uh, to look to the forgiveness of the whole people and pray on their behalf. Um, 
This is all spelled out in Leviticus 16, 1 to 34. And with that in view, uh, Dr. Ferguson thinks that we can understand the high priest's intercession as it develops uh, over redemptive history uh, to the time of Jesus. His intercession uh, could be understood in three concentric circles. First, he prays for himself um, and the ministry that he was about to exercise. And then he made intercession for those who were consecrated with him to the Lord's service. And then third, he prayed for all the people of God. And with that insight, you can clearly see how Jesus's uh, prayer is following that pattern. And in fact, the, now the whole symbolism of all these years uh, carried on from one generation to another in only a type and shadow is coming to its fulfillment, its full fruition in the high priest of the new covenant. The true and final day of atonement is dawning and the shadows are going to give way to reality. Um, the, um, the work of covering sin, which was forward in the day of atonement, now is giving way to something far more wonderful, not just a covering of sin, but to take away its guilt and its power entirely on the part of his people. Um, Jesus was about to make a sacrifice that will take away sin and bring deliverance from bondage once for all in, his, in the offering of himself, the shedding of his own blood. Uh, and so, um, on page 181, Dr. Ferguson identifies uh, that threefold pattern in the parts of our text, one through five, uh, praying for himself in his ministry, 6 through 19, for his immediate disciples and the work that he's given them to do, and then for all who will become believers uh, through that work until the end of time, in verses 20 through 26. So it really whets the appetite to follow uh, the exposition of this closely and to understand the wonderful integration that this brings to our sense of the gospel story, but then thereafter all of church history um, that is in Christ's mind's eye as he prays uh, in this prayer just before he goes to the cross. Uh, the um, idea that the prayer includes us um, certainly heightens our interest in it. And uh, Dr. Ferguson points out that the scope of this prayer is uh, breathtaking. And um, the uh, covering as does so many generations and all of God's providence um, and through the fulfillment of his redemptive purpose through the preaching of the gospel. Um, well, it's also he argues a motion of a, a moment of deep emotion as Jesus expresses uh, in language that he has not used heretofore his relationship with his father. Um, o holy father or O righteous father uh, and that his hour has come and he's now uh, obedient to the point of death, even 
death on the cross. So that's kind of an introduction to the prayer. Anyone a comment or question or a remark about um, Dr. Ferguson's work at setting the stage for us? All right. Uh, We're on 182 then under the heading Jesus prays for himself. Uh, The hour has come. We have seen all along that um, the Jesus has been challenged about his ministry, and he, with some frequency, would respond by saying, well, my hour has not yet come, and there's a moment that it is to come, and we have now finally to that come to that time. Uh, the, um, you, you remember that uh, Dr. Ferguson argued that the Greeks who asked to see him was a signal that now we were moving on to the worldwide uh, ministry that had been promised all the way back uh, in the covenant with Abraham. Um, the work of Satan in opposition is being aroused, uh, but Christ knows that he is the victor. And in fact, um, what is about to take place, uh, Dr. Ferguson calls um, the most ancient of all promises, was on the verge of fulfillment. The hour that we've been waiting for, for centuries, is the hour when the Savior's heel would be crushed, but under it he would crush the serpent's head. The most precious of all promises. But it's going to be uh, an extraordinary ordeal, and when Jesus turns to pray for himself in that ordeal, uh, he doesn't say, isn't there some other way possible that will come at the appropriate time in the narrative? Uh, But not here. That's not the most important thing. Uh, Does he pray for strength to endure? He certainly needs such strength. But again, that's not his chief burden as he comes to pray concerning this matter as the hour has come. The chief thing that is on his mind is found in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Um, the um, Dr. Ferguson comments, there is no other prayer in history quite like this prayer. Believers can pray it after a fashion, given what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that... Uh, we're to be transformed from one glory, one degree of glory to another. But the and so we would have a right to pray. You've promised for that uh, glorification. Uh, please accomplish it. But the point is that there's an entirely different sense of glory with respect to Christ. The glory that we would be praying for would be a reflected glory reflecting the wonder of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus calls this my glory. And, and, and that is really quite striking. And Dr. Ferguson wants to underline that for us, to get the full force of it, that he could speak in that way, possessive, my glory. And so on page 184, we turn 
to the deity of the Son and this expression of Jesus' self-consciousness. He knows, as the Son of God, uh, glory is his by right. As the second person of the Trinity, uh, he has all of the attributes that the one God has. And he knew that he had come from God, was going to God. The Father had given all things into his hand. And Dr. Ferguson comments at the end of that paragraph, this is not the language of a mere man. Uh, I think that sentence is the very essence of understatement. That is very far from the language of a mere man. And and, and most powerfully, he goes on to say that given our Lord's knowledge of the scripture, for him to say, my glory, who knew very, very well from Isaiah 48, 11 and other places, that it is as essentially a part of God's claims for his own prerogatives as any, that he will not give his glory to another. He is, above all things, the most glorious. And so for Jesus, understanding that, to talk about in the presence of the glory of the Father, his own glory, a shared glory that he had with the Father, and he's now coming to receive it again. This puts him on a level more remarkable um, uh, than any mere creature. Um, He asks directly for what it is his by right, and yet it is at the same time what his father had promised him, promised to give him in relationship to his work. This is so intriguing. Um, The... um, In the background here, and Dr. Ferguson doesn't take the time to review it, but in the background here is what the theologians have called the covenant of of redemption. The pact between the Father and the Son. The Father um, appointing a work of redemption to be done and the people to be redeemed in his electing love and the Son agreeing to be the agent of the Father's purpose to bring it to pass perfectly. Um, And the son being promised therein that he would be glorified in the wonder of the work done to redeem God's elect. Um, uh, So that is so striking. On page 184, the third paragraph, Dr. Ferguson begins a, Uh, what appears to be at first an aside. Jesus is a son of the Father, and therefore he is one who always honors his Father. Um, In his humanity, Jesus expressed that honor by obedience as a creature. He is the Father's pais. That's the P-A-I-S, the Greek word for child. He is 
the father's son. Um, and now, as the child, he's going to his father and saying, you promised me this glory. Will you pr- please now keep this promise? Well, I hope this section reminded you all, and it's, I want to pause for a moment and just recall the third point of Pastor Wolf's sermon on Sunday uh, concerning promise and prayer. Paul put it this way, promises properly produce prayer. Wonderful alliteration there. And he argued that from David's prayer in 2 Samuel 7, 25 and 27 through 29. You remember the text? David prayed, And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoke concerning your servant and concerning his house. Do as you have spoken. A promise and a prayer for the fulfillment of that promise. And it's repeated again in the uh, verses that follow. Lord of hosts, you have made a revelation to your servant. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this to you. See, it's on the very foundation of God's intention, understood, that leads believers to be bold in their prayers which David takes up. God promises, and so David prays that God would do as he had said. Prayer, you remember, is an offering up of our desires unto God that are agreeable to his will, according to the Catechism in 98. What is agreeable? Well, what could be more agreeable to his will than that he should fulfill his promises? And so, as Paul put it again, the promises of God drive us to prayer. And so, too, this is true for great David's greater son. John Calvin put put the point strikingly this way. He said, this is the hour which God has appointed. And yet the prayer is not superfluous, because while Christ depends on the good pleasure of God, he knows that he ought to desire what God promised would certainly take place. True it is, God will do whatever he has decreed, not only through the whole not only though the whole world were asleep, but though the whole world were opposed to him. But it is our duty to ask from him whatever he has promised, because the end and the use of promises is to excite us to prayer. I think that point beautifully summarized there by Calvin. Well, let me pause before we leave this. Uh, Dr. Ferguson's going to go go on to another point. It's of some significant for us to pay attention to. But any reflections, thoughts? Uh, I thought it was a lovely providence how this um, uh, uh, conjoined so beautifully with the exposition we had from David and to see great David's greater son in virtually the same circumstances. Yes, Bonnie or Bill? Yeah, Dave, that's a great uh, link to the sermon on Sunday. I, when I was talking to the high schoolers about the sermon, that verse that you just read about David uh, saying, uh, therefore I have courage to pray mm. uh, for your promise 
to come to pass in my life or in my family's line, whatever, um, is really a striking um, example for us. And I was trying to explain how, you know, we David's demonstrating boldness before the throne of grace, mm-hmm. but using the foundation of what God just promised to him. Mm-hmm. And why can't we do the same thing every day? Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's just, it's a boldness that I, I lack in prayer often. And it's just a tremendous parallel, Second Samuel 7, to, to this prayer here. Yes. Great link. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Other thoughts? Dave. Yes. Um, so I had two thoughts. One is that it um, seems like we can get sort of lackadaisical um, in maybe some other scriptures that say if you have been justified, you certainly will um, be with the Lord. Um and the fact that Christ prayed this is just really astounding because he knew. And that just, I think it must have to spur us on mm. to um, not pray in a way that we're just always worried about it. And can you fill in the next part of that? We're not just worried about it, but that we should... Um, I don't know, um, pray like Christ did. A confident expectation that God will glorify his son in bringing to pass what he promised his son in my life. Uh, that's a that's a precious foundation right. for prayer. Right. And then I think of um, when we study history, going back to maybe some of the pharaohs, and they think they are God. Mm-hmm. And um, that it's a warning to us <laughs> that uh, we we should beware of people who think they are God in a way that you know they're the only ones that can fix things, or that they think so much of each other of themselves. You there, Jen? Well, maybe we'll hear hear more later. Um, well, let let's press on. Um, we're uh, this section is closed with a question: What is this glory that uh, was Christ uh, by promise as well as by right? And on 185, he begins a discussion of it. Um, uh, This is uh, an external manifestation of his invisible attributes and perfections. Uh, It's typically displayed through the created order. um, And uh, it is, as it were, if the wonders of creation are... um, 
the uh, um, dress that God adorns himself with in order for we um, creatures of sense to be able to grasp something of the wonder of who he is. Um, I do think, just a brief aside, you know, Roman thought, the Roman Catholic thought has this idea of a beatific vision. And uh, usually what they mean by it, I think, is utterly unbiblical. But um, uh, Jonathan Edwards had a doctrine of the beatific vision, and it was quite extraordinary. And his understanding of it was that um, when we're perfected in the likeness of uh, our Savior, we will have a spiritual sight that beholds the glories and beauties of God apart from any uh, need for the vision of the eye. Um, it'll be a kind of mental sight. And I, I think it's an extraordinary thing. And he points out a number of texts that seem to sustain it. But in any case, the point is here now for us to grasp something of uh, the, the excellence of God above all things there needs to be a manifestation in the external world, and that's the word glory is applied to that. Uh, Dr. Ferguson notes that in Psalm 29 in particular, uh, it seems to be the point that uh, it's as if a thunderstorm has come upon the people of God gathered for worship. Uh, a fireworks display, he puts it, of the majesty and power of God and the people of God um, uh, rightly respond instinctively uh, in verse 9. In his temple, all cry glory. Um, and uh, glory had been a passing part of many different instances in the course of the gospel. Uh, the wedding at Cana, the Mount of Transfiguration uh, for John uh, at Patmos. But... Um, in the incarnation, our Savior had veiled his glory. It was not seen in the wonder of uh, the way it was when he was with his Father in heaven. And thus it was a deep desire that the time would come when that veil would be removed and it would become evident to his disciples that he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That striking passage from Hebrew, Hebrews 1.3. Um, so Dr. Ferguson wants to draw out of this the significance for the question, uh, is Jesus God? Is that what the New Testament teaches? And he refers to a number of texts that are quite strong um, in uh, affirming that point. But he particularly wants us to see here that Jesus is expressing his own sense of his deity in this prayer. Um, he has glory that he had, that he is going to have again. And in the meantime, he is, has authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those who the Father has given him. Only one who, Dr. Ferguson says, only one who is himself God can claim glory for himself and none other than God himself 
has the authority to give eternal life to sinners. It's a very powerful point, it strikes me, uh, to draw from this prayer. Um, the um, And the uh, point then that Dr. Ferguson wants to pursue is that um, this glory is not at odds with our good. Um, that uh, you, you might think that if your purpose is to glorify God, that it, it, it's going to require kind of annihilation of your presence. Donald Drew, when I was at Labrie, used to talk about a certain kind of evangelicalism in Great Britain. It was a hymn that was much loved. And the chorus was, Oh, to be nothing, nothing, nothing. And there, there is a self-dying that belongs to the Christian life. But that's not a desire to be nothing. Because corresponding to the desire to die is the desire to live in place of that deathly life. I want to die to sin in order to become alive to Christ, to be uh, vital and um, uh, bursting with joy and uh, so that the marvel of the gospel is that um, to take up your cross and follow Jesus is to follow a path to glory. Uh, the same glory that Jesus anticipated by taking up his cross, uh, so that um, it is not the case that God's glory is the antithesis of our blessing. Now, of course, Dr. Ferguson goes on to nicely note, this is very, very hard for us to believe. And he says, it's because by nature, we're not in our right minds. (laughs) And he picks up Paul in Romans 1. We become futile in our thinking when we uh, uh, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Um, It's an enormous difficulty to overcome that sense that my good can't be connected uh, to God's glory. Um, And in fact, a nice sense on page 187, uh, I won't read the whole thing, but he talks about how there are many places uh, where the young in the United States um, uh, understand something that is a complete mystery to the most sophisticated and academically qualified unbeliever. Someone who's in the heights of the halls of academia or uh, scientific achievement, a brilliant understanding in the universe. But if they are as they come into the world in Adam, this grand truth, they haven't a clue with respect to it. Uh, that is that man's chief end, his chief purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Uh, that first question of the shorter catechism. Um, and that's because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul teaches in Romans. Um, and left in that way, we've lost the enjoyment of God. Um, without seeking his glory, we can't take pleasure in God. So there needs to be a restoration for that to be overcome. 
Uh, and thus, uh, in the middle of that page, 187, we come to the path of restoration. Um, the, um, but let me pause there for a second, just see if you want to comment or reflect on anything that we've talked about uh, from there on uh, glory and joy and the conjunction of our good and, and God's blessedness. Any thoughts? I had a question, do you? Yes. On page 185, going back to the sentence, John had already seen Christ's glory at the wedding in Cana. Um, John has certainly seen an awful lot more than what Jesus did at the wedding of Cana. And by all means, a miracle, turning water into wine. But what about that particular miracle was it that John would have called that out as seeing Christ's glory? I think it's... You've seen so many miracles. Right. What about that one? I think it's because that was the first, really, of the taking back the veil a little. Um, The... um, uh, Wait a minute, I've, I've gone to the wrong place here. Um, yeah. Um, you remember, Dr. Ferguson has called this uh, gospel the Book of Signs. And um, in John 2.11, after um, the comment of the shocked host that the best wine was being served last, uh, John says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So that seems to take on a particularly powerful role in the self-consciousness of the disciples. Uh, that that this glimpse of his glory had such a powerful, um, I mean, clearly his disciples were already willing to be in his school, but there's some new level of conviction, uh, devotion that is provoked by the sign. At least that seems to be what's indicated in John 2.11. Does that? Thank you. Any other thoughts on this? All right, restoration. Um, the uh, idea of restoration uh, is intricately a part of this prayer. Um, he came to glorify the Father. Uh, the Father must glorify the Son. This double glorification, um, how does it take place? Well, uh, the text may make it a little hard because there seems to be, uh, Dr. Ferguson wants to say, a slight difference between the logic of the text and the order of the text. And so he wants to sort of reframe it so we can see um, 
the pattern. This is uh, the bottom of 187 and over to 188. So when does Christ pray? When the hour has come for the uh, Father to glorify the Son and the Son glorify the Father. How does the Son do this? Uh, by having accomplished the work you gave me to do. What was the work? To give eternal life to all that you have given him. Now, notice this. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. But it is so certainly accomplished at this moment that he can speak of it in the past tense. That it's part of the Father's now glorifying him because none that were given to him will be lost. So effective is his, is his ministry. Um, the How does the Father glorify the Son? Uh, he's going to receive him into his presence with the glory that he had before the world existed. So, this is the climax, Dr. Ferguson argues, of the promise that God gave in Genesis 3.15. Um, and on 188 at the bottom and 189, Dr. Ferguson goes on a brilliant, compressed um, exposition of the first Adam and his ministry and the eschatology of that ministry. That is the, the end of all things, that the garden was going to not only be kept but extended the world was going to be populated um, and that they would have authority so to do. So that had Adam been faithful, um, he could have said the very words that Jesus said, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. But however wonderful that calling was, Adam failed at it. And it brought a crisis to the whole program. All have sinned thereafter and fall short of the glory of God. But now Christ has reached the stage in which his ministry, uh, in his ministry, where his death, resurrection, and ascension are settled. There's no turning back. The work uh, that the Father had given him to do understood as, uh, in a sense, paralleling that lovely description we had of Adam and the program that would have been in place before the fall. Now Jesus is the last Adam. And he came to undo what Adam did and came to do what Adam failed to do. Jesus is able to say what Adam could not. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And soon he'll say it is finished to tell us die. Um, so what we're hearing, Dr. Ferguson argues, what we are overhearing in Jesus's prayer has its roots in the opening three chapters of Genesis. And then this lovely speculation, I don't know what to make of it myself. But given what he's just said, and all of that, it seems to me uh, doubtless true. He says, um, Jesus is the gardener that Adam failed to be. 
he meant he was and he means to extend that resurrection garden to the ends of the earth through the preaching of the gospel. So that when Mary, on the morning of the resurrection, doesn't recognize Jesus, but rather suppose his, him to be a gardener, uh, he wonders whether John sees more clarity than confusion in Mary. I think that's uh, a lovely thought. Um, I hope it's true. I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of it exactly. But uh, in any case, um, it, uh, in, in a lovely way, illustrates how Jesus is the second Adam um, and uh, how the Father will glorify the Son, even as the Son uh, glorified the Father. Well, anything on that section? Uh, it's pretty dense. It is also very important and powerful. And if you can uh, keep those parallel, set of parallel ideas, the description of what it would have been for Adam to be faithful, and then how Jesus' work as the second Adam um, uh, accomplishes that and brings about the glory that was altogether lost because uh, we had uh, turned away and could not um, find the glory of God. Dave, I think this is this may be the simplest and clearest explanation of what it means for the Lord to be the second Adam that, that exists. It's really, really something. Yes, it, it's so powerful, isn't it? It just grips the mind in a wonderful way that you feel like pieces are fitting together. Um. Dave, is there a, I agree entirely, um, is there a place where that is elaborated on a bit more, uh, that it's so dense and full, um, it couldn't be more concise? Mm. Uh, Bavink has a wonderful section on this. Um and it, it's uh, um, the ideas, maybe not precisely this order or fashion, are pretty commonplace in the more redemptive, historically inclined works, even going back as far as the Puritans, uh, when they're really paying a c- close attention to the covenant of works and the covenant of grace um, and trying to unfold that. Uh, Great, thanks. That's a good enough direction I'll poke around with. All right. Thank you. All right. All right, well, on to 191, the joy of the sun. Um, that a large role here is given to the beautiful text in Hebrews 12, 2, uh, that because of the joy that was sent before him, Christ endured the cross and despised his shame, the shame of it. Um, And uh, we've already seen intimated that that is a pattern for us, that that we endure the things that we're called to um, 
the cross that we're to bear in this life because of the joy that is set before us, that Christ is a model there for us. And this leads um, uh, Dr. Ferguson to reflect upon how difficult it must have been for Jesus to endure life in this polluted world. Uh, This uh, sin-soaked world and his sense of longing to be back in that world which was so glorious. Um, He brings up the fact that the uh, Welsh have a specific word for this. It's hiraith, hiraith. You have to roll the R to say it properly. Um, And uh, this is a word that for the Welsh means a deep longing of a person uh, or thing which is absent uh, deep longing for a person or a thing which is absent or lost, a yearning, a nostalgia. And in what I find found to be a very potent paragraph, uh, he notes that we are just so familiar with sin that we can't have any idea of the deep perversity that attaches itself to us and our, our way of being in this world. Um We've breathed in its atmosphere so long we have lost the ability to taste or smell the pollution. Um, We are too desensitized by familiarity to be able to imagine what it must have been like for Jesus, who wasn't uh, in the least um, inclined or participating it in any sense. Um, And that leads to the allegory. Um, but I'm feeling like I have somehow, I'm going to stop for a minute, neglected something that I wanted to draw your attention to. Um, yes, oh, I'm sorry. I think I'm going to break the flow since we're on that allegory now, and uh, I I did especially want to um, draw your attention to this. Um, This is on page 185, and um, Dr. Ferguson is discussing the idea of um, the deity of the sun, particularly um, that uh, he is the pice of the eternal father. And um, there's a footnote on that page, um, footnote two, that is worth pausing over for a minute, if for no other reason that there's a fair amount of controversy been associated with this for the last couple of years. And this is worth noting just for our own practical benefit in understanding what it means to honor your father. Um, but more profoundly, um, to understand our Lord's role. So uh, the point is this, that Jesus honored his heavenly father, always in every way. He honored the father 
in his incarnation in a different way, however, um, than he either before or after. And uh, this comes forward. In other words, last uh, sentence of the first paragraph of the footnote, this is the specific form of honor appropriate to the incarnation, that the son should be obedient during the days of his flesh. Now, here's the exposition of the fifth commandment. A son has to honor his father all the time. But when we are children, the form that honor takes is to be obedient to the father. But when we grow up, we are no longer under the authority of the father. We don't have the obligation to be obedient, but rather a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. He continues to honor his father, however. Um, the, uh, and and, and the, this understanding of the commandment is crucial for us. Uh, so honoring your father and mother found in the commandment is always applicable to an offspring with respect to his father and mother. When he's a minor, it means that he should be strictly obedient That's the expression of honor that Paul brings out in Ephesians. Honor your father and mother. First commandment with a promise, children, obey your parents. But in the leaving and cleaving that belongs to maturation, the honoring remains, but not the obedience. Now, Dr. Ferguson wants to bring that forward as the the proper way to understand Jesus. Um. So, he wants to say, the second person of the Trinity always honors the Father, whose Son he is. But in sharing our humanity, that honor took the specific form of submissive obedience. When he returns to the Father, that, and is now in his glorified state, that submission does not obtain and it did not obtain before the incarnation. Thus, this is the sentence. It's a simple, straightforward sentence, but there's probably about 50,000 tons of paper that have been spilt over this. Thus, as the eternal son, he eternally honors his father, but his eternal relationship with his father is not one of eternal subordination. Um, In the last five years, let's say, there's been a huge Reformed controversy among Reformed folk and some others uh, who, in trying to understand the role relationship between men and women, and particularly husbands and wives, they've wanted to say that uh, the wife or woman is subordinate to the husband not as a role relationship, but belongs to actually who she is, essentially. And to sustain that point of view, they have tried to argue that the Son of God is eternally subordinate to the Father, and that's what the Father-Son relationship means. And Dr. Ferguson, I think, has brilliantly undone that 
by the simple reflection that son does not mean subordinate. It can in certain circumstances, but son means one who honors the other as a father. And um, I, I, I think it uh, is so simple, and I know he probably didn't want to go in at any great length to it, but for those who have eyes to see, this is a remarkable uh, and plain-spoken refutation. And in case any of you have been following that eternal subordination controversy, um, the, uh, um, the classic reform view says that the uh, difference between husband and wife is not essential, um, but it is a role relationship in the economy of God in this age. Uh, others have tried to say that it is essential in some way and uh, that it belongs to the very nature of things. Uh, the latter, I think, is a serious error, and it is, in fact, a profound error if you try and uh, put the second person of the Trinity in that circumstance. Anybody had a question or comment? or uh, Has anybody even heard? Of the, I'll be actually very happy if you haven't heard anything of this eternal subordination controversy. Dave, this is Steve. Yes. I have heard of it, but I can't say I'm very I'm familiar you know, with, with it as well. But I did want to just reflect on that, that last section uh, about, you know, you, 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 met, you mentioned right before you kind of went back to page 185 about how Jesus must have really felt. Just reflecting on that, it's, it is mind-boggling because I, I think we just have a hard time grappling. Like, like you said, you know, our our world is just so filled. We're just so so used to the circumstances around us. It's hard for us to see how things could be so different. Yes. And what Jesus came from, and just reflecting on that, it, it's it's just pretty pretty amazing to think that you know what what he did all that time. He's being I mean, just living in this world was oppressive. Yes, yeah. And that passage in Second Peter is so powerful, isn't it? it that uh, uh, where Lot here, uh, uh, you know, a person of endemic nature, nevertheless, said to be greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked uh, that tormented his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. And, and if that's true, with respect to Lot, <laughs> think of how it must have been for Jesus. That's a great point. Um, um, well, um, surely there, uh, it must have been characteristic of Jesus' self-consciousness um, that he felt a deep sense of uh, haraith, Um and uh, and the beautiful thing is that in this prayer, we're anticipating the satisfaction of that feeling and desire. Uh, and so uh, Dr. Ferguson wants to say that it's a privilege beyond words to be allowed to uh, overhear um, these words in the first section. Uh, the privilege of overhearing the Son, the second person of the Trinity, telling his Father, the first person of the Trinity, what he most wants 
and all the world and desires uh, for all eternity. And of course, uh, we know that the Father always hears the Son and his prayers now have been answered. He is glorified. Countless knees bow before him. Countless tongues confess that he is Lord. And Dr. Ferguson says, in that marvelous uh, understanding, something that moves us uh, to want to see that Christ is glorified as well. The lovely little story that Dr. Coop uh, at the end, I, I loved um, uh, about uh, the fellow who was saved from smoking. And uh, All right, any questions, comments in the uh, little just few minutes we have left? Um, reflections on this chapter? Hey, what yeah. you just mentioned? Yes. Uh, it seems to fit well with um, Galatians 3. 27, 28, 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That, that what you were just talking yes. about makes sense of that. Verse. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think that's right. And what Christ always did was to honor his father and honor those, even, I mean, those that were his followers, even when they were sinful. And anyway. Yeah, great point. That we honor each other. And glorify Christ through that. And oh, just to um, clarify, when I disappeared, <laughs> um, it's our Edie's little granddaughter. Um, it's her fifth birthday today, and we were waiting for the box to arrive at their house. So that was Sarah calling to say the box arrived, <laughs> and Edie loved her. Two little tutus, <laughs> put one on her head, <laughs> the other one on as a skirt, and then the other gift. Anyway, so oh. that's, that's why I disappeared. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good news. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> I would like to say this was such a dense and rich chapter A. It's well worth rereading. I also feel it felt it fell a little victim to the pressure to put everything in thirteen chapters. <laughs> this could easily have been two chapters. Oh yes. But it still would have taken. Yep. An hour on each half. Absolutely. So, that was very rich. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, we'll look forward to pressing on next week. Um. And uh. So let me close with prayer. Our Father, how wonderful what we've been able to overhear in our Lord's prayer. We thank you for the rich way in which your revelation in the Old Testament, the types and shadows of the Aaronic priesthood and the Day of Atonement and all come to their 
most glorious fruition in the true high priest, the last priest, uh, who makes atonement, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own precious blood. An atoning sacrifice that's once for all. And that this is to you, your glory, and that you have glorified him in it. And that we can anticipate joining our Savior in that glory. We pray that our hearts would be full of that great promise. And that that would guide us ever to pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. We ask this in his name. Amen.